0: Hi, everyone. Dan Cassidy here. Welcome back to the Wealth Planning Podcast Series here on the UBS Conversations podcast channel. I do have with me our host, Eric Cini of UBS. Eric is an executive director and wealth planning strategist. So, Eric, will take a few moments here at the top to provide some further context around what you'll be hearing today, as well as introduce our guest. Though with that, Eric, welcome back. I'll pass it over to you.
1: Dan, thank you as always. Thanks for all your work on this. Uh, hello, everyone. Uh, I'm Eric C. wealth planning strategist here at UBS, Dan mentioned, and uh, I'm excited to share another edition of the Wealth Planning Podcast. Uh, today, we are going to spend some time talking about uh, a topic that we hit all the time, Secure 2.0 Act, uh, often called Secure 2.0. This bill, which was passed back in December, took effect in January this year and has created uh, a lot of different discussions related to the content. So there are a lot of changes in there that are impacting our clients, ranging from required minimum distributions to new rules around uh, certain charitable strategies. So joining me today to give us some insight on Secure 2.0 is Ainsley Carbone, Director and Total Wealth Strategist with our Chief Investment Office, America. Ainsley works exclusively with our CIO team, helping educate our clients on all manner of planning issues. So it's great to have her today. Ainsley Great to speak with you, and thank you so much for joining us today.
2: Great to speak with you, too, Eric. Thanks for having me.
1: Absolutely. So, Ainsley, let's just jump right in. There's been a lot going on in D.C. this year so far with the adoption of the Secure 2.0 Act. Can you tell us some of the key changes that are driving the most questions for our clients?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there were a lot of changes. I want to say there were maybe 90 or 91 provisions in Secure 2.0. So there's a lot to cover, but for the purposes of this conversation, I think it's it's important for us to focus on the the provision that I'm getting the most questions about, and that would be the increase in the age for the required minimum distribution.
1: Ah, yes, the age change. That one's a little trickier than it seems, uh, actually. In fact, yesterday I was just talking to some advisors about it for a meeting, um, because there are a lot of questions about it. It's, it's not quite as clear as, it, as we would hope.
2: Yeah, that's, that's for sure. It's definitely not very clear. So how about I start off just defining what a required minimum distribution is, and then we can talk about the changes. Does that sound okay? Absolutely. Okay, perfect. So required minimum distributions, we also refer to them as RMDs. So when we are saving for retirement in retirement accounts such as 401ks or traditional IRAs, we're adding to these accounts on a typically a pre-tax or tax-deferred basis. We haven't paid taxes on those dollars yet, typically, and that money is growing over time. And we typically don't have to take it out. However, once we hit a certain age, and that age is different for some people, which we'll get into, but once we hit a certain age, the IRS forces us to take distributions. So the first year that we begin to start taking these required minimum distributions, it's a certain percentage of of the account. And then each year after that, we have to continue taking distributions from those retirement accounts. We have to take these required minimum distributions. And that percentage gets larger and larger and larger. And the reason for that is essentially the IRS just wants to get their money. They want you to pay taxes on those dollars. So the reason that these can these distributions, the RMDs can sometimes be a little problematic is because of that tax treatment that I was talking about. I mean, this whole time that we're saving in our retirement accounts, we're not paying taxes on those dollars. But when we take them out, they are taxes, ordinary income tax typically. So that's why they can be a little bit problematic. Now, we're talking about Secure 2.0 today. So what are the changes as it relates to Secure 2.0 with RMDs? Well, Some people are going to be able to delay these distributions. So, for instance, if you were born between 1951 and 1959, you can delay required minimum distributions by one year. So what I mean by that is your applicable age for RMD changes from age 72 to age 73. And if you were born 1960 or later, you can delay distributions until age 75. Now, I will say there was a little bit of an error in the text, of this law, of this bill. So, the, uh, ni- the year 1960 or later, when I say that, th- it is pending further clarification. So, it's important to keep in mind. But I think for those of you who are impacted by this, being those who were born between 1951 and 1959, it's important to note that you do get one extra year to delay those distributions.
1: All right. All right. That's a lot. Yeah. Right? <laughs> That's why it's complicated. So let me see if I can summarize it correctly and tell me if I'm wrong. So basically, if as of 2022, if you are already taking your required minimum distributions or postponing your 2022 distribution until April 1 of this year, then you just are going to keep taking distributions. And if you have not taken your required minimum distribution yet because uh, it wasn't due in 2022, then you get to wait a year if you want. Did I get that right?
2: That's
1: correct All right, so it, it's it's clear as mud sometimes, but that's what we're here for, right is to help clarify it. So I think you did a nice job there, and so hopefully uh, hopefully that's something that uh, we can continue to focus on with clients because we, we know that we get that question a lot. Um, so let's pivot for a second with with the r m d age increasing, right because of this uh, going forward. Some investors now have an option to delay the distributions. Does that mean they should? Uh, what are the what are the pros and cons of delaying the distributions from their retirement accounts another year? Can you talk a little bit about those ideas? Yes,
2: absolutely. Because that those are great questions, and we've we've gotten that quite often. So I'd be happy to talk about it. So just because you can delay these distributions one more year or maybe a few more years, that doesn't mean that you should delay them. Now, the, generally speaking, the longer that you wait to take these distributions, the more tax-deferred growth potential that that account, that those assets have. But maximizing your tax-deferred growth isn't always going to be the best approach because, as I was talking about earlier, all those dollars in that tax-deferred account represent a, a future tax burden. So the more tax-deferred growth we have, the greater that future tax burden become. So, sometimes it can make sense to take distributions a little bit earlier than that required minimum distribution age, whichever the applicable age is for you. And that's even that can be even more beneficial if it's in a lower than normal income tax year because it essentially allows you to get those dollars out at a lower tax rate and it also helps to reduce future required minimum distributions, or it helps to reduce the balance of those accounts that are subject to required minimum distributions during your lifetime. And that's why it reduces the amount of those future required minimum distributions. In short, Eric, it can make sense to delay those distributions the next year, but that doesn't always mean that you should. So I think this is absolutely an opportunity for you to sit down with your advisor, because they'll be able to help you kind of weigh all the pros and cons and and help you find that strategy that that's suitable for your specific, unique situation.
1: Yep. I, I think you nailed it right there, Ainsley. Um, it sounds like, and I know this is something we do regularly, it, it sounds like planning is really the way to approach this, right? Understanding what your income needs are going to be, what kind of cash do you, are you going to need in a particular year, what is your tax bracket going to be, or what other things are driving your tax rate in, in those years, to the extent that that you have an option as to when to take distributions, doing some planning around it really is critical. And, and we spend a lot of time doing that here at UBS. As you know, we have a lot of teams uh, dedicated to the planning side of things, along with a, a bunch of digital tools uh, and research that, that helps us guide our clients in this area. So I'm glad you brought that point up because I really do think, um, I really think that's the critical element of this. It's, it's not just knowing the rules, it's really integrating them into your overall approach. Thank you for that. Now. Um, You mentioned the idea of this tax burden on retirement assets. And and while we don't provide tax advice here at UBS, we do like to educate our clients uh, on tax matters. And we certainly always recommend that you consult with your tax advisor before making any decisions. But with that in mind, what's one strategy or concept that you'd suggest for someone looking to reduce their tax
2: burden. So, when it comes to reducing the tax burden of your retirement assets, I touched on it a little bit earlier when we were talking about taking distributions earlier or before you're required to by the IRS when you're in those lower income tax years. So, accelerating your IRA distributions can make sense in some instances. Now, some of you may be thinking, well, when am I going to be in this lower than normal income tax year? Typically, we see these lower than normal income tax years occur shortly after you retire because hopefully the years leading up to retirement, you're earning a a decent salary, maybe one of the highest salaries that you've earned during your career, Then all of a sudden you retire and you don't have that salary anymore. So your income maybe has dropped a little bit. You probably aren't most likely aren't yet receiving social security benefits. You probably aren't yet subject to those required minimum distributions. So, those are typically the years in which you would be in a lower than normal tax rate or tax bracket and therefore being taxed at a lower than normal tax rate. So in some instances, accelerating these IRA distributions might make sense to take it out, take the distribution out of your IRA, put it into a taxable account and either reinvest those dollars or use them to fund near-term spending needs. But in other cases, we would recommend considering whether to make partial Roth conversions with those assets. So what happens with a partial Roth conversion, it can be a little bit confusing, but what we mean by that is taking distributions out of a tax deferred or tr- traditional IRA and paying taxes on those dollars and moving it into a Roth IRA. So the dollar amount of that Roth conversion is going to count as taxable income, so it's kind of seems counterintuitive when we say completing partial Roth conversions to reduce the tax burden because of the fact that it is going to create taxable income for you that year. But doing that conversion in the low tax year is a great way to fund that, those tax-exempt assets. So it's a great way to fund a Roth IRA at a lower tax cost. It's also going to continue growing on a tax-free basis. Those assets will not be subject to lifetime required minimum distributions and it can pass income tax free to your beneficiaries. But just like you were saying, Eric, Roth conversions aren't appropriate in every single instance. It really just comes down to considering what your tax rate is today, what your future tax rate may be in the future, and how much wealth you already have in taxable, tax deferred, and tax exempt dollars because it really comes down to making sure that you're balancing or diversifying the tax treatments of your assets and every single family every single household is going to have a different ratio of those taxable tax deferred and tax exempt dollars so really again i can't stress enough. up it's, it's important to work with your financial advisor but also that that tax advisor as well because they'll be able to help you maybe pinpoint a little bit more of an accurate uh, current tax rate and future tax rate too
1: yeah, I think you just, you just brought it home again, right, emphasizing the idea that planning is essential and in, in leveraging all the members of your team, right, your, your financial advisor, your accounting group, uh, and possibly sometimes even your attorney. So it's, it makes sense to, to really focus on that planning piece to, to get it done right. So I know we have just a couple minutes left today, but we've also, you and I, spoken previously about some other strategies that that came out of the Secure 2.0 uh, some of them being charitably related. Can you walk us through uh, some additional ideas that, that might help impact, potentially reduce a client's uh, tax burden on these retirement assets? Yes,
2: yeah, absolutely. So one other strategy that might help you to reduce the future tax burden of your retirement assets would be qualified charitable distributions. We can also refer to them as QCDs. So, Qualified charitable distributions, they can be a really helpful way to help your charitable donations go further because it can help you fund those philanthropic legacy objectives using distributions from your IRA. So what happens when you make these qualified charitable distributions is you can take those, you'll, you'll initiate a transfer directly from a traditional IRA to a qualified charity And what happens is that amount that's transferred is not going to be included in your taxable income that year. But another benefit is that it's going to count towards your required minimum distributions for that year. So there are a few things to keep in mind. For instance, qualified charitable distributions cannot be made to donor-advised funds or private foundations. In addition, qualified charitable distributions are only an option if you're at least age 70 and a half and can generally only be done with traditional IRA assets, and they cannot exceed $100,000 in the year 2023. So if you have a sizable IRA, and you're looking for the qualified charitable distribution strategy to help you with the tax burden of your required minimum distribution, a sizable IRA is going to create a sizable required minimum distribution. So since that limit is for the QCD is set at $100,000 a year. It might not be able to fully eliminate the, the tax cost of your required minimum distribution. But one thing that I do want to point or point out with these qualified charitable distributions is that it, when it comes to these QCDs, it effectively makes these charitable contributions tax deductible in a way that doesn't require you to itemize your taxes in order to take advantage of this tax benefit whereas if if you make the donation directly from taxable assets and donate the amount the donation amount below the standard standard deduction cannot be deducted from your income that year so I know it, it can sound a little bit confusing because there are a lot of limits and a lot of amounts of the the standard deduction to keep in mind. So I definitely encourage everyone to to take a look at the report that we wrote that we're speaking to on this podcast today. But definitely keep in mind those those limitations. And then when it comes to how the Secure 2.0 Act impacted this is one major way is that going forward, beginning, I believe, in 2024, the annual limit for qualified charitable distributions will be indexed to inflation. So what this means is that those with those sizable IRA assets and therefore sizable required minimum distributions, you may be able to satisfy a larger portion of your required minimum distribution with these QCDs. So each year, it would make sense certainly to sit down with, again, your advisor and your tax advisor, just to make sure that If you are completing these Qualified Charitable Distributions, you want to make sure that strategy is updated to reflect the potentially higher limits that occur each year.
1: The Qualified Charitable Distribution is a great tool. We see a lot of clients leverage, uh, especially those who are of requirement of distribution age. As you mentioned, uh, you can take that and satisfy some of that RMD. Um, It doesn't count as income. And I think to your point that you're making, it's, it's not technically a deduction, right? You don't you don't put it down as a charitable deduction in that year, but it's also not income. So you're 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 managing to get that charitable benefit without having to really work through the tax piece of it directly, uh, because you, it, it doesn't show up. Um, so I think that's that's an interesting piece, and I also uh, think that it's worth, as you mentioned, spending time with your accountant to work through some of these elements to make sure that you understand how much of this is going to impact uh, your r and if any, and, uh, and the charities that you want to support. I believe typically it's a 501c3. Uh, Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that's, that's the place where you normally see people making these qualified charitable distributions directly through this charity. So it's a great way to really support a lot of causes, and we have a lot of clients that, that take advantage of it. One last thing uh, that I wanted to ask you, and you actually just referenced it, but I know, you know as part of your work with the Chief Investment Office your team regularly puts out you know, a number of reports you know, for the benefit of our clients on all kinds of topics. Um, is that something, you know? You mentioned the one today, could you talk a little bit about that report because I know there's there's one out there that impacts and is directly on the topics we've been covering.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So the, when it comes to Secure 2.0, if you're looking for more information about the other provisions that were included that we didn't touch on today that might impact you, the 2023 retirement guide that we have published is something that is available to the public. It's available to clients and advisors, and it includes a few of the provisions that are relevant to individuals who have assets in IRAs and employer sponsored retirement plans. So that might be helpful for you to understand the various provisions and when they become effective because they aren't all going to be effective in 2023 or 2024. Some of them are spread out over the course of a few years. And then if you're looking for more information on a few strategies to help improve the after-tax wealth potential of your retirement assets, we do have another report. It's Modern Retirement Monthly and it talks about, or the title is three strategies to improve your after-tax wealth potential. So we touched on two of them today, Eric, the qualified charitable distributions and completing Roth convert, partial Roth conversions, but there are some other strategies that are discussed in that report. So, we can make that available for you.
1: Fantastic. Well, Ainsley, this has been really enlightening. I know it's a lot of detail and a lot of rules to work through and you did a fantastic job of clarifying it all for us. So thank you again uh, for your time today. And uh, because I know that Congress never rests and the IRS likes to tweak things, um, there may well be a a secure 3.0 someday Um, But when those those rules change again, uh, hopefully you'll be willing to come back and and give us another update to keep everybody current.
2: Yes, absolutely, especially because we might not even have to wait for secure 3.0 and when that happens, because even though the, the bill and the law and the text is out, we don't really know how a lot of this is going to be interpreted yet by the IRS. So we also just kind of have to wait for the IRS notices and guidance to come out so we can understand how to implement some of these strategies that are going to exist because of Secure 2.0. So hopefully I will be back with you, Eric, sooner than the next large bill comes out.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, I can almost count on it. I'm, I'm sure we will be talking again this year. So Avery, again, thank you so much. And uh, I look forward to speaking with you again on this. Thank you, Eric. Absolutely. So with that, that wraps another session of the Wealth Planning Podcast. I appreciate you joining us and spending time with us today. Uh, For our listeners, if you have any questions regarding today's discussion, please reach out to your financial advisor who can start that process of working through some of these rules and bring resources like Ainsley, Chief Investment Office, UBS's other planning teams into the discussion to help you work through uh, your questions. Thanks again, and please join us next time for another installment of the Wealth Planning Podcast.
0: Neither UBS, Financial Services, Inc., nor any of its employees provide tax or legal advice. You should consult with your personal tax or legal advisor regarding your personal circumstances.